Zone 3 Podcast. Robert here. I got Reggie. We're yes. the MRI guys. Oh, yeah. Lucky enough to be joined by the cardiac guys. We've got Dr. Joker closest to the camera here. And we've got Dr. Marcotte. We got Hello. radiologist and a cardiologist. And today we're discussing cardiac MRIs. Right. Really special guest today. We appreciate yeah. you guys coming to visit us. Thanks for having us. Wow. Yeah, we're lucky enough to be joined by some of the best in the industry. So today... <laughs> very modest yeah. very modest <laughs> I like so if you would dr jokers just kind of describe um your background you know some sure. of your hobbies maybe outside yeah, of work yourself, okay for sure. sure so you know I, i'm from the midwest originally a little town about an hour south of st louis you know grew up spent a lot of time outdoors did all my training in st louis went to medical school there you know residency in diagnostic radiology fellowship in cardiothoracic imaging at washington university there in, in st louis nice Came out to Arizona. Got hot. Gosh, it's been about seven <laughs> years ago, 2013, when I came out here. So I've been an attending now for about seven years and uh, do cardiothoracic imaging. And you know, lately I've gotten a little more interested in kind of the physics and technical aspects of MR. But Wow, nice. Yep. So that's a little bit about me. Anything else you guys want to know? Well, we're lucky to have you in Arizona. For sure. I'm in the same hospital as us. Not, not missing the winter. <laughs> you were sure. probably one of the first res that I witnessed actually jump on the scanner. <laughs> and like really knew what you were manipulating oh, yeah. and like just click, 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 click. I will like, say that's, you know. I was really impressed. You're like house. Yeah. That was, well, you're exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Like like they can all right do here. that. Right? They're all scanning and doing surgery and all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, actually, my, my fellowship emphasized that a lot. And I'm glad it did because yeah. uh, it, it's helpful. So. Oh, for sure. I know it helps us out a lot too that you yeah. can actually break down where to go to make some of the changes that you're requesting or some of the things that, you know, you want us to do for you. So. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that. That's nice. You're sweet. And we also really appreciate Dr. Marcotte. Yes. So Dr. Marcotte, if you would, tell us about yourself, your background. I am Francois Marcotte. I'm originally from Montreal. Did my med school at University of Montreal and then the residency at McGill University and then fellowships at the University of Toronto. I'm a cardiologist who specialized in congenital heart defects, which is people born with heart defects. Nice. Blue babies and, (laughs) you know, unfortunate and uh, non-invasive imaging. And I've focused on imaging that doesn't require x-rays. So I started with ultrasound, and then I saw some of the limitations of of ultrasound and then became interested in MRI and then learned about that. And I've used it uh, ever since. I've been doing MRI for about 20 years and uh, really enjoy it. I think it's a great compliment to my practice. I think it can bring a lot to the table. So glad to be here. And Francois has brought a lot to the table. I got to say, reading cases with him has been you know, one of the highlights of the last few years. So it's a real pleasure. Has it made you step your game up a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> I remember when he was coming, I was like reading books and trying to like, you know, because I didn't want to be a back, backwards yokel. So. I think our collaboration exemplifies the importance of collaboration and the fact yeah. that we each have our strengths. Uh, right. You know, for me, there's stuff that I feel less comfortable reading, like, you know, chronic aortic syndromes or mm-hmm. stuff that's in the lungs or mediastinum mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I learned a lot from, from Clint and, and our other uh, radiologists. So it's really, uh, I learned a lot. I can tell you, I'm, I'm really happy. Nice. That's pretty cool. Well, it's because you guys are happy to share your knowledge. And that's one of the reasons why he brought you here because, you know, I've worked with a lot of radiologists and not very many cardiologists, but you guys are awesome to work with. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for um, being here today. Appreciate it. So um, we kind of want to dive into it. We don't really know the direction because really you're the experts on today's subject. So we'll kind of follow the guidelines, but we, we kind of wanted to go over anatomy. We wanted to go over physiology. Uh, we wanted to go over pathology as well. So you mentioned earlier that originally you started it with ultrasound. 
as being your diagnostic imaging go-to. I'm curious about how that compares to like, say, a HIDA scan, which is usually in conjunction with an ultrasound, like a stress test. Yes. Um, how those two would compare like an MR as far as information provided. Yeah. Did we want to go to the second slide? Maybe we oh, could yeah. uh, do, I have a comparative uh, note here. Um, yeah. So oh, Dr. Yeah. Marcotte, um, we love prepared guests. So thank you. <laughs> we, we love unprepared guests. So thank you too. So, <laughs> so, so uh, cardiologists who see patients with heart disease are faced with, the nice thing about cardiology, it's, there's a, there's a very, fairly limited number of clinical problems people have. You know, they're short of breath, they have chest pain, right. they have palpitations, they pass out, or, you know, they have swelling, or, you know. And then, so we have a number of tests, and typically as a first-line test, we'll do chest x-ray, EKG, an echocardiogram. But some of the limitations we have uh, with echo is the, um, what we call the spatial resolution, the ability oh. to 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 see small things. Right. So this is a slide that shows the various capabilities. You were talking about scans and stuff like that. So, so echo has a very high temporal resolution, which means it's very quick. It's got a high frame rate. So you can see small things, well, medium to small things that move quickly like valves. Mm -hmm. It's very good to record velocity like Doppler and that type of thing. But it doesn't see well, for example, if there's air, if there's bone, a lot of fat. So we're limited in terms of the ability to penetrate some of these uh, structures in, in the chest, especially. Right. And we're lucky because the heart's kind of midline. We can, you know, we can finagle our way between the ribs to see the heart. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that CT does. And Clint, I, I don't do yeah. any CT, but Clint does CT. Yeah, I can expand uh, on that. CT's got a fantastic spatial resolution. It's, it's under a millimeter. Yeah. Uh, something I wanted to touch up on today was just the difference in the modalities and what value each one brings and what's your preference for sure. Like, yeah. You mentioned a radiograph, a chest x-ray, but I'm thinking like, in my experience as an x-ray tech, beyond CHF or some sort of abnormality and within the size of itself. I mean, like, uh, like you wouldn't be able to diagnose an infarct or something like that. No, you need an EKG, an echo. So CT has very good spatial resolution. In terms of temporal resolution, it's, it's the opposite of echo. It doesn't have a high frame rate, but there are improvements, and Clint can talk more about that. Yeah. The nice thing about MRI is just in the middle. So it's got the best oh. of, of both, and that's why I put it right in the middle. It doesn't have quite the frame rate that Echo has, but it's got a better frame rate than CT. Right. It's got a spatial resolution that's better than Echo, but unfortunately not as good as CT. The good thing is that it doesn't expose the patient to radiation like CT and nuclear medicine uh, do. The hidden gem is that the fact that we do nice pictures of anatomy, but really, if you look at MRI, it's been invented as a tool to analyze tissue. So it's, a, right. it's like a histochemical analysis. Right. You generate great pictures, but you can tell whether you're dealing with fat, with blood, with muscle, you know, et cetera. So it brings to the table the whole concept of tissue characterization, mm -hmm. which is kind of more difficult with echo. We, we do have a sense, you know, we can see if something's cystic or, or solid, uh, you know, but once it's solid, then you can, you can, you can get a lot more information. I don't know about CT, Clint. Uh, well, for... Kind of the, the way I like to think about it is echo and CT are, are kind of sort of one trick ponies. So if you think about it, what are you doing with echo? You're imaging sound waves, right? That's all you're doing. There's nothing else you can do with echo. Right. CT is the same thing. What are you doing? You're blasting somebody with photons. Some of the photons are going through and some are stopping. So you're imaging how tissue attenuates photons. Mm -hmm. You can change the profile by giving somebody contrast, you know, with iodine or barium or what. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you're kind of, you're just looking at one thing, basically. Whereas with MRI, you can make all these little tweaks and adjustments. And, and like Francois was saying, really 
characterized tissue, but it can do so much more. And just another kind of plus of MR, I think, you know, echo is great. It's widely available. It doesn't require any ionizing radiation. There's no dangerous magnetic fields. It's definitely first line when when we're looking at the heart for a lot of different conditions. The echo is very operator dependent, and it's kind of like the way I like to think of it is imagine you're going into a dark room, mm-hmm. and you kind of know where, where to look in the dark room, and you have a flashlight, and you're looking around in that dark room. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MRI is basically turning on the overhead light and, you know, <laughs> illuminating the entire room. So you don't have to spend as – now, that being said, you know, of course, if the, the probe, the echo probe is in the hands of an accomplished sonographer – it's not a big deal because they know where to shine the light. But, you know, not everybody is, you know, the Vincent Van Gogh of... Uh, Although know. when we say technical dependence, and I, and I think you're, you're right about that for, for Echo, it's also you need technical expertise to do MRI. It's, it's probably one of the most difficult MRI or one of the most challenging types of MRI, even though the vendors are trying to put some very automated protocols and help you with defining planes and stuff. It requires a lot more hands-on right. than uh, I mean I'm I'm from an era and yeah. and I guess you you might be as well but so when initially we didn't have all these tools so right. the technologists had to know the anatomy understand know where to cut so we had some right. set protocols and the thing with the heart is that unlike most static organs mm-hmm. it earns its living by moving constantly. Right. So as you know, in MRI, moving constantly is like... That's an issue, right? <laughs> Stop. And if that weren't hard enough, the lungs also move. Right. So, right. so you, you introduce you breathing motion. So we thus have to rely on sequences that are very fast. And we have to rely a lot on breath holding to sort of stabilize, to, to limit the variables to simply the heart moving. And then a lot of the sequences we use are called segmented sequences where we chop the, the cardiac, everything's gated. So we chop off the cardiac cycle right. to get our images and get all these phases with the best possible resolution. So you see, right. it's kind of a tour de force that MRI does to be able to get cines, to get motion and to get resolution. It's the most difficult organ to image with MR. And as you look at how MR technology kind of trickles down, Usually neuro, like brain MR, drives it because the brain is easy. It's just like a tub of water that just sits there. You can stick it in a coil and, you know, (laughs) it's not moving around. There's a little bit of CSF pulsation. But like MSK, things like that. And then you've got body imaging. It's tough because there's, you know, breathing and stuff. But the heart is a whole nother level. So a lot of times the innovation takes a while to get down to the cardiac level Mm. because, you know, there's a lot going on there. And it, cardiac, in a lot of ways, drives innovation because you have to have really fast sequences to image the heart. You have to be able to do these really slick reconstruction algorithms to be able to even make a useful image. And so it's got its pluses and minuses, but it, it drives innovation, but it's also kind of right. it's waiting one. for all that stuff to trickle down. <laughs> just real quick, I was going to throw in there, just for the you know, for the patients who are curious about how we compensate for motion for the heart moving and for the lungs moving, we do breath hold instructions for most of the sequences. So I'm a cardiac scanner myself, so I do hearts. And another thing that we do is we call it gating. So we'll set you up with some ECG leads and we just kind of compensate. Yeah. yeah. And the way to think about it is if something's moving, but we're taking a picture. If you always take a picture when, when something is in the same spot, 
it doesn't look like it's moving. Right. You know, but right. the faster it moves, the more chances your picture is going to be blurred. Right. So heart rate is kind of an important thing too. And, sure. you know, if, if something's moving up and down and you're going to take a picture every time it's down, but then it starts moving left and right too. Well, now so, you're going to have a blurry image. Right. So that's the gating takes into account all cardiac motion, but any other motion, be it respiratory, be it patient, it's not taken into account. So. Right. So is there a optimal rate range for cardiac scanning? Well, I will say, speaking as somebody who like, you know, is involved in operations and has to keep an eye on like time on the scanner, (laughs) you know, cardiac CT, the slower, the better. So if we could stop people's heart and do a CT, it'd be great. We'd have trouble getting the contrast to go into the coronary arteries probably and the patient probably wouldn't be too happy about that. That's the advantage of MRI. You don't require as slow. What you need is regular heart rate because you're gating. Yeah, so mm-hmm. our, our biggest enemy is when the patient has a lot of arrhythmia or when our gating capabilities are hampered by the RF signal. So we do it, we record oh, an EKG, yeah. but as you know, Robert and Reggie, yeah, you, yeah. you both you both have seen, sometimes we, we start out, we put the patient in the scanner, we've got a great EKG signal, we get and then we turn on the RF signal. And then everything sort of disappears, <laughs> and then the gating just disappears, and it becomes a headache. So right. Yep. We need regular rhythm. It doesn't have to be as slow as CT. The thing is, as you go faster, well, then you've got to compromise somewhere. So if your heart rate is faster, then you you get less phases. So you're you're uh, so that that's. I would inc- say sixty to eighty is probably, probably the okay. sweet spot, you know. And when you get up north of a hundred, things start to break down. And it's some facility. the scan goes faster. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a shorter breath is, hold. Yeah, it's oh, a shorter oh. breath hold. If your heart rate's eighty, yeah. like I love eighty over sixty because the <laughs> yeah. scan gets done ten minutes sooner. Right. You're like moving. having said that, MR is very used in kids, and yeah. children have oh. faster heart rates, so that it can be used. It's simply the, the important thing is really to have a slow heart rate. Right. So, but, some, the, but for us, sixty to eighty is just right. perfect. Yeah. So we can pack it in, get yeah. thirty. Um, Will you consider? Possibly medicinally providing some sort of, I mean, like providing the patient with some sort of medicine that's going to help. You know, there's always a risk benefit, you know, to anything. And anytime you give medication, you're piling something on the risk side. Right. So it really depends. The main thing that, like Francois was saying, is you need a regular heart rate. So if you have somebody who has AFib and they're not rate controlled, then absolutely, you know, give them beta blockers, try to slow them down, trying to get a little more late. You know, you're, you're basically treating their arrhythmia is what it, it amounts to. But when it comes to actual, like, for cardiac CT, we routinely give medication to slow the heart down. I don't think we ever really do that for cardiac That's MR. The, I mean, it's very, very... You need a certain amount of regularity, and I guess you can do arrhythmia compensation, where, which is you'll basically create like a like a corridor where you're, where you're going to accept, you know, a certain time interval. Right. And then those who are much slower or those who are faster, you reject. But you end up losing data, obviously, and it takes right. a little longer for your scan. So longer breath holds or longer um, longer scan times. Right. So consistency is also key with breath holds as well, because I explain yeah. to patients, when you take in a deep breath, your anatomy moves down quite a bit on a shallow breath, not as far. So we want it to move to the exact same spot every time. And so we want patients to consistently taking the same amount of volume on every breath hold and actually as far as inhalation exhalation which one is better a lot of times exhalation is better for that reason more reproducible yeah. right. but it's uh it tires the patient we, we don't realize especially if you're a sick person you know we're mm. we're all healthy today all right. tested covid negative right. and uh, for now yeah touch wood. <laughs> right. but um so but you if you are an elderly person who's mildly short of breath you're you know lying in a tube 
with antennas over you and, you know, covers and stuff like that, you can appreciate that the people get tired breathing in, breathing out. Yeah. You know, doing that over and over it's a again. Lot of tons of breath cardiac yeah. Yeah. So 60, 70 breath. Ideally, if right. we can make nope. scan times as short as possible, we, we try. But these, these scans tend to be... And we were doing some long. protocol development stuff about a week or two ago, and I was the patient on the table Tell doing me. expirations. And I'm a guy in my 30s with <laughs> <laughs> who jogs had difficulty with it. So, was well, it a favorite vendor? Someone is doing you know a pretty good job with that, like kind of helping out. The you overall. know, when it comes to that, I think they're all kind of around the same. You know, that's yeah. always when it comes to talking about getting a quick acquisition. You know, we can get into the technical stuff later, but really, you know, what speeds up imaging is you know having a multi-channel coil so that you can do parallel imaging yes and then also this new thing compressed sensing which compressed sensing itself isn't new but you know the basically the software hasn't been powerful enough to use so as computer processors get more powerful scanners now can start to do this compressed sensing and you can definitely tell when you're using it it's not as good it it Mm -hmm. looks different but you're scanning the entire heart in one or two breath holds oh, instead wow. of 12, you know, oh, yeah. so. There's certain patients that are going to need Like, is that. it good enough? Right. You know, that's, exactly. that's, uh, that's, but we can talk about that when we get into the interview. Well, that's actually, later, so. I appreciate that about you because I've had to call you about certain patients and we kind of tailored it to that specific patient based on their needs. So, um, but speaking of needs, I'm, I'm curious about like, what is the, the, the common indications for an MRI cardiac. Now, you mentioned congenital is kind of your experience, but I imagine it goes beyond that. Yeah, I mean, congenital is a rare indication. Congenital disease is about 1% you know, one to 2% of the population, so right. that's quite rare. I mean, for the symptoms that I mentioned earlier, I mean, for, for us, the diagnosis of cardiomyopathy, myocarditis, so a viral infection of the heart, right. to look for inflammation, to look for scar. Blue, 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 yeah. It's used a lot in um, post-MI cases because with the with the uh, addition of gadolinium imaging, in addition to tissue characterization, looking for edema, area at risk, we can calculate EF, but also we can image scar size. Right. The topography of where a gadolinium accumulates as a breakdown of the barrier between blood and myocardium occurs. As you remember, gadolinium is an extracellular agent that normally does not enter cells. Right. But in the case where cells have been damaged, or if you have an, an expanded interstitial space, then gadolinium may enter. So that's how we image. And right. each disease has kind of its own signature. Like heart attacks tend to be like in, in the inside of the heart. We call this subendocardium or transmural as, as the heart attack progresses. Things like myocarditis tend to be on the outside of the heart, and that's a kind of a bit mystery for us oh. why that occurs. So, the, the accumulation of the heart that's where the, the contrast enhances. Yes, yeah. okay. so along the pericardium. So, there's often when people have myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle, they sometimes can have pericarditis, which is an inflammation of the wrapping around the heart, which is the, called the pericardium. So there, these things often travel together. You have a nice image in here showing some of the yeah. physiology of delayed oh, yeah. enhancement. Let's pull that up. This is an example it, yeah. of... Keep uh, going. It, it shows some cells. I just kind of, while we're yeah, talking so about delayed enhancement... if we go back to the first uh, double image we had, David. Um, sorry. So that so, was just to show you the, the different sequences we have. So if we go one back of that, these are static images. So there's no gadolinium, but it's just to show you the versatility of yeah. MRI showing the same patient same slice, different machine adjustments. The one on the left is a T1-weighted fast spin echo, black blood imaging. Nice. And the one on the right is a 
fast spin echo, but T2-weighted imaging with fat suppression. And you can see that we see different things. Yeah, That's some of the tricks we have in our bag to kind of characterize tissue. Black blood imaging, because it is a slow technique, will excite all the structures within a slice, but blood travels, so it leaves the slice, and, and thus it is replaced by unexcited blood, so that when you turn off the excitation and you recoup the energy through your RF uh, antenna, yeah. you get no signal from the blood. I'm simplifying it a lot, but, and then muscle, myocardium has sort of an intermediate density and fat in basic T1 imaging is very bright because it relaxes very quickly, gives us a very bright signal. We can do inversion. So the one on the, on the left is a double inversion recovery. The one on the right is a triple inversion recovery with a long TR. And then you can see, and, and the way you can tell this is T2-weighted imaging, CSF is, is water, and you can, you can see here, I've pointed uh, with a white arrow, you look at the image on the left, the CSF looks dark in a T1 imaging, and yet it is static, it doesn't move like blood. So right. you can, uh, so, and then you can see that on the right, uh, the T2-weighted image, then the, the CSF appears as bright. And also, if you look at the, there's, there's fluid around the heart and around the lungs, so you have right. large pleural effusions bilaterally and pericardial effusions and inflammation within uh, uh, this matter. So this is all static, no gadolinium, but it helps us understand the anatomy, but also the physiology, even if the heart's not moving. This is what has become the workhorse of our of our cardiac exam because the heart moves, as we said earlier. Right. So this on the image on the left is a cine, basically, which is a white blood imaging um, SSFP, steady state of free precession, where your repetition time is about two hundred times faster than a spin echo. So blood doesn't have time to escape the slice; it gets caught and returns the signal. Plus, we give it a little help with uh, kind of a rewinding gradient, which is a bit of the, the, the principle between, be, uh, behind SSFP. Yeah. And you can appreciate here, this is a, an example of a patient with pericarditis. You can see here, this is the heart. This is the, the wrapping around the heart, the pericardium. You, you can see that there's thickening here. And you see the heart muscle, like this is the right ventricle, the left ventricle, left atrium, right atrium. You see the pulmonary veins that yeah. bring back the blood from the lungs to the uh, to the left side, and then you see the the, the septum, which is that uh, that wall between the two ventricles, is kind of wiggly a little bit. So this is an example of a, of an abnormal septal uh, motion that we see. Mm. Now, this is an image that's done during breath hold. That's why the image is so crisp and so nice. So the patient's not breathing. But then we can we can also a derivative of that is to do real time imaging, where we say to the patient, "Go ahead, breathe." So. It exemplifies the limitations or and, and the trade-offs you have in cine imaging. You see that we've traded off spatial precision for temporal resolution. Right. So we let we, so we acquire more images. They are a little blurrier. But then what we can see here is that when the patient breathes in, and how do we tell the patient's breathing in? Well, the heart goes down. The lungs inflate with air. So as he's going down, so you see flattening of the septum. So this is a clue that we have that the patient has what we call constrictive pericarditis. So it's one of those pericarditis that's squeezing the heart and making it difficult for the patient to breathe. Now this patient actually had severe renal failure. So we did not inject gadolinium for safety reasons, oh. but yet we were able to do a very nice exam in this dialysis uh, patient with chronic constrictive pericarditis. So just to show that gadolinium is, is useful, but we can get a lot of information right. even without uh, the injection of gadolinium. You know, since you got that free breathing cine up, I, was, I did have a question for you. Um, I've worked with you and you've told me to, mention, to make sure to include a free breathing cine if a patient has history of pleural effusion. What's the reason for that? 
Often when you have pleural effusion, you may have inflammation of the pleura, pleuritis we call this, and you can sometimes have what we call pleuropericarditis. So it's possible for a patient to have inflammation of both the pleura and the pericardium. And the other thing is if you notice on this patient, perhaps we didn't, we don't see it as well on this patient, but a patient with constrictive pericarditis like that may develop a kind of heart failure. The yeah. function is good, but these patients often have pleural effusions as a result of their disease. So when I see pleural effusion and the function seems to be good, our mind goes, and that's why and this goes, and, I, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you brought this up, Robert, because I think it, it adds to the, the need to, to flexibility right. and to sometimes make changes on the fly when, you're, when you see something, because you sometimes discover things as you're imaging. So right. that's why it's important for, 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 for you guys to, to communicate with, with Clint and I to tell us, hey, well, you know, I've got some images. Uh, right. What do you think? Are we proceeding as, as the plan? Because we protocol cases, but sometimes surprises yeah, happen. Curveball. And, right. and, and this, you know, this... This so, is also a nice illustration. You know, we were talking about the importance of breath holding earlier. But, you know, you can do some imaging on a patient that can't hold their breath. You know, it's not great. It's not as good, but but you can get something at least, right. you know, from patients, you know, that that short axis real-time imaging. And and as the technical things like compressed sensing kind of come along and get better, we're going to be able to do more and more free breathing exams on patients. Nice. So eventually you won't even have to hold your breath anymore for any yeah, MRI, right? Yeah, you just lay in there, you know. <laughs> but th it's just a great example of with MRI, there's always almost always some sort of trade-off, right. you know. So. Nothing is free. So, it, you know, if we want to get a better temporal resolution and move away from a segmented case-based filling algorithm and get real-time imaging, you know, we're going to, we can do that, but we're going to pay a price. You know, the image isn't going to look as great. We're giving up some spatial resolution. And These images were acquired with a 3T magnet. You were wondering perhaps the, the differences yeah. between 1.5 and, and 3T. Yeah. Well, I mean... For us in, in, in cardiac, I mean, 1.5 is what, I, what I've what i used more. Uh, and we're talking about field strengths here? Field strengths, yeah. yeah. So, but this exemplifies these, some of the strengths of, um, I, I compared kind of like a, riding a Bronco to riding a, you know, a, a nice uh, service horse, you know. Yeah. The 3T is is much more challenging for the, for the technologist because you've got, you know, get your off-resonance frequency, reduce yeah. your dark band artifacts and stuff. But once you get that, the smoothness you look at that the the, the smoothness of the of the myocardium yeah. uh, on the left is really uh, quite nice. I've got other images later that were acquired on one point five, and you'll see there there are a lot. I mean, the right. signal to noise ratio is obviously more of an issue. Yeah, right. and that's that's what you you know the reason why we you know I, almost like an arms race. Like mm -hmm. when it comes to MRI field strength, you know the the original scanners were less than the Tesla. Right. And one and a half Tesla came out, and three Tesla. Now they have some commercially available seven Tesla scanners. Oh, that's right. And you know by doubling your magnetic field, you double your, you automatically double your signal to noise across the board. Right. But everything else doubles too, so your artifact gets worse. Yeah. You know, you really have to tweak things now for the, for something that doesn't move a lot, like the brain. You know, we all do almost all our neuroimaging at three T mm -hmm. because it's easy. You right. know, and and you, there's not that big trade off. But imaging the body, you know, abdominal imaging, cardiac imaging, thoracic imaging, things that move. You know, things that where you've got a lot of these interfaces between areas that have protons and areas that don't, like the lungs. 
you, you get into a lot of artifacts and you have to be able to kind of mitigate that. And it takes a, a sharp tech to, yeah. to be able to kind of make the changes that need to be made to improve your image quality there. But yeah, I, I see in the future as we move forward, a return to lower field strengths and using technology, using all to boost. Yeah, exactly. Like so rather like we can go to maybe 0.8 T and make it look like it was done on a 1.5 T because See, of the technical, yeah. you know, the software sided things and the reconstruction so side. Cause so, the safety factor. Yeah. The artifact goes away. The, the MR. Yeah, so, so we can, we can delve into that later. I yeah, some so ideas. dive into it now. I'm curious okay. if you just yeah. had like, so if, Hypothetically speaking, you're the director. You're about to buy. A per, you're about to purchase just one machine for your department yeah. for cardiacs. Would it be a one five or a three? It would be a one five. Okay, and that's just, just is that cardiac, just because of re? Be five, yeah. Is yeah. that because of you know restrictions with MRI safety and with that's the a big per, part of it. I mean, the bottom quality? line is there's there's good enough. You know, uh, just and image so quality. Which if, would you pick? If you well, just based off of image, image quality, quality alone. Well, it yeah. depends. It you know, it like if you give me a perfect patient that doesn't have any metal inside them and okay. can hold their breath forever, <laughs> sure, do three T. You know, <laughs> right? But how many of those do we get? <laughs> so yeah. I mean, you know, taking practical considerations, I would rather get. 95% good enough imaging oh. and 5%, yeah, on a one and a half T than like 80% good enough imaging and 20% we have to bring the patient back, right? you know, because of some artifact or, or something. So that's one thing, metal artifact that clinicians have trouble understanding because we, we, we put so much emphasis on, on patient safety. So we say, okay, right. pacemakers and all this uh So a lot of the biological implants are now MR compatible. Right. So they are you know, they can be used. They will not cause injury or harm to, to the patients. Right. However, the problem with these is that they create a lot of artifacts. Right. So I ha we, we get patients sometimes sent to us to, to look at people with prosthetic valves, for example, yeah. and or pacemakers. And I guess we can, we can see, but, you know, even, you know, little coils or annuloplasty rings, yeah. these are all biological implants that, that create a fair amount of artifact and really are quite a bit of a hindrance to do quantitative measurements. You know, you want to get a precise ejection yeah, fraction, right, right. look at the flows. Some of these uh, implants are actually a big problem, which is not as much of a problem with CT. CT has right. less of a problem oh. with artificial valves. And with the improvements, I guess, that you guys have seen, I mean, I've seen some wonderful images of prosthetic valves yeah, with CT, right. or you can see the, the, the valve discs, and, and it's actually, yeah, no, so it can, this is stuff can we can't do little, with CMR. So right. for the clinician, it's important. Clinicians don't understand always this thing. So struggle. We, yeah. we try to, we try to, 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 to bring this, uh, you know, to get the right test for the right patient. Yeah, and, right. and implants aren't getting less common. They're getting more common. Oh, yeah, you know? sure. And just because it's MR compatible doesn't mean it doesn't throw off a lot of artifact. There was a little, those implantable loop recorders, actually, they throw out a fair amount. You know, they're very yeah. small, but they throw out a pretty good amount of artifact. And the for thing sure. to remember, too, is with MR, everything is based off of us knowing what the magnetic field is. Right. And the problem with metal or any other kind of foreign body is it disrupts that magnetic field. And so it results in artifact in and of itself, but it also degrades your magnetic field and makes it more heterogeneous. Yeah. So just overall image quality takes a hit too a lot of times. So. Sure. One of the things that, that are metal but do not cause major problems are coronary stents, people who have yeah. like angioplasty and oh, stents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not as much of an issue. Oh, so nice. those are, they're, they're kind of more discreet than, yeah. and, and we can do the exam with that, with that. They will cause a blowout uh, region. You'll see a black or dark uh, yeah. uh, area. 
but we can still navigate with that. It, they're not they're not a major problem. Well, one thing I did want to talk about, and I think we kind of touched up on it, was the necessity and the role that contrast plays. So it sounds like it's not always necessary. But well, it really depends on what you're looking for. So if if you had to, to MR can do a few things that other things basically can't do or can't do very well. And one of those things is demonstrating myocardial damage, fibrosis, you know, amyloid deposition, you know, old infarct, new infarct, whatever. You need contrast really to do that well. And that is the main, I think when we give up contrast, that is the main thing we're giving up. Because even uh, MRA, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're getting better at doing MR angiography without contrast. We haven't really... You know, that's still in the process of trickling down. But when it comes to the delayed, although we'll, we'll see with the parametric mapping, a lot of times with the T1s, you can kind T2 of mapping. predict, Yeah. you know, pre-con where an infarct is going to be based yeah. off of, you know, the, the T1 and T2. Yeah. But I don't have the confidence, though, that we have when, uh, I think they're complementary. I mean, no. late gadolinium enhancement is a macroscopic phenomenon that you see, whereas the maps give you sort of that microscopic, that sort of diffuse fibrosis that you may not be able to see at the naked eye. So right. the advantage, I guess, of gadolinium for, for scar imaging is that when it's big, it's really helpful. <laughs> right. you, you really see it. But uh, Well, and it, it drives clinical decisions, too, when we're talking about viability. Oh, you know, sure. If you have an infarct, right. you know, is it worth revascularizing this territory? Is there any living myocardium? If, it, if uh-huh. it's enhancing, it's dead. So so you're not going to get any of that from CT. Yeah, yeah, you can't get that from CT, and you can't really get it without contrast, you can kind of make some assumptions. Right. And, and not that it's the have-all, end-all, be-all, but definitely the viability imaging with delayed enhancement. And then, you know, other places where it has kind of a prognostic capacity would be like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You know, it, the people that have more myocardial fibrosis, delayed enhancement, right. tend to have more issues with fatal arrhythmias. So, you know, if you have, what is it, 20, 10 to 20% of your myocardial mass or more demonstrates enhancement, they get an AICD, whereas, you right. know... Uh-huh. So. So when you find enhancement, it's really a, it's a bad thing for the patient, whatever the disease is. Uh, prognostically, you, could, you look at all the Kaplan-Meier curves in a given disease, be it coronary disease, myocarditis, mm-hmm. hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, yeah. amyloid, everywhere. The more gadolinium you have, the more patients die. Yeah. And fibrosis uh, is something that interferes with the, the conduction of electricity within the heart. Mm-hmm. So it makes the, um, the electrical system less effective mistakes occur and then that's how arrhythmias start when there's like short circuits that occur fibrosis is a is a terrain for this problem to occur and that's how it correlates with with sudden death so a healthy heart you won't see any contrast in health enhancement well now here's an important distinction the heart enhances okay <laughs> so basically with delayed enhancement that myocardium is, it's either not myocardium or it's dead myocardium. Oh. So, I mean, it's like Francois was saying, it's it's an issue, you know. You, you, you don't want to have delayed enhancement. And lots of different things cause it. So having delayed enhancement, that's not specific. So specificity is kind of like, all right, this is what this is because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know sensitivity, specificity. Right. It's not whether or not you have the enhancement. It's the pattern of the enhancement that gives specificity. So in this case, if we're seeing delayed enhancement, it's subendocardial. It's in a vascular distribution like left circumflex. Those are all things telling you this person has a big 
infarct. And you look at it and say, all right, there are areas where it's transmural more than half the wall is involved. You can revascularize that region and there's a high probability it's not going to make a difference. But there are other regions where more than half the myocardium looks like it's still alive. So, you know, if you revascularize, that area might perk up and the ejection fraction might come back up. And now when you're saying delayed enhancement, so you're saying like, so technically it should wash in and then wash out? Oh, that's right. The the whole point of this is the heart enhances. So what what (laughs) we do here... The previous slide, we can show you an example. um, So before that, so this is if we play that cine on the right, this is an example of a... um, yeah. of a stress perfusion. So I must say, however, this uh, is not yet an approved FDA use for gadolinium. Gadolinium really was mainly engineered as a angiographic agent. However, some very uh, intelligent and very uh, observant uh, radiologists <laughs> in, the 19, in the early 1990s, and cardiologists probably, found that not only would you be able to opacify the cardiac cavities and the great vessels to do great angiography, you also could see the hue of, of, of gadolinium, this, this sort of graying that you see. So this is an example of a short axis view where you have, this is the right ventricle and then the left ventricle. So we inject the um, gadolinium in, in, in an arm after administering a pharmacological stress agent. In this particular patient, we gave adenosine, but there's different drugs that can be given, regadenosine or dipredomol. These are other medications that, uh, that can be used for, for stress. They're very safe. And uh, what we see here is there's an area that under enhances here in the anterior territory, whereas you see the perfusion, as Clint was saying earlier, occurs more normally in the inferior and the lateral. And it just yeah. turns out, so these were the images in this patient we, wow. who then moved on to have late gadolinium images that showed no late gadolinium enhancement. So this patient had what looked like coronary disease without having an infarct. And this is the patient's coronary angiogram wow. that confirms this really, really critical uh, proximal left anterior descending stenosis. So the patient underwent coronary angioplasty and stenting, yeah. fortunately, so is, before sustaining. This is ischemic myocardium. It's not debt, which is why it doesn't show the delayed enhancement. Right. So this is also a great example, too, is, I don't know, like, if you're not used to looking at cardiac MRIs, you might say, like, why isn't this guy's heart beating? Right? <laughs> 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 but it's moving up and down. And so, you know, this is an ECG-gated study where basically we're looking maybe 70 times at the same slice, uh-huh. but we're only looking at the heart at a specific point in the cardiac cycle. We're not watching the heart beat. We're only looking at, you know, usually late diastole. Right. And so that ECG gating takes into account that heart beating, and we're only looking at one specific point. So that's why the heart doesn't look like it's moving. But we're looking at that point over and over again over time. So we're watching the contrast. You can see it come into the right ventricle, can go out to the lungs, come back, you know, into the left ventricle and out through the coronaries and then, you know, perfuse the myocardium. And the reason it's bouncing up and down is because the patient's breathing. Right. And the ECG gating doesn't take into account respiratory motion. Right. So... It's just a good example of, of how important the gating is uh, here. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that you'll see here is the myocardium enhances. And when we talk about delayed imaging, really what we're doing with delayed imaging, we don't mention it, but it, this is an inversion recovery sequence where one of the things that's really important to get good delayed imaging is we want to take normal heart and make it black. Right. And so if there's any abnormal heart, it stands out. It's huh. easier to see huh. gray right. on a black background than it is to see white on a gray background. Right. And so that 
you know, I don't want to say the heart doesn't enhance. It does enhance. It's just we are trying to null out. We're specifically targeting normal myocardium and say, let's make the normal myocardium black. Right. Because there's contrast in the myocardium. It's alive. So, you know, it's it's not in the myocardium proper. It's in the capillary beds inside the myocardium, of course. But sure. In fact, the, the the heart enhances, but then the, the gadolinium escapes and gets eliminated by the kidneys. It's right. the fact that it remains stuck and, and yeah, can't escape right. that determines that. So that's... Is that also why TI is so important for the contrast yeah. of the t- adjacent tissues, I guess? Yeah, and one of the reasons why with amyloid deposition... You've got so much of these amyloid proteins around the body, and they kind of sponge up the contrast, uh-huh. and it pulls the contrast out of the blood pool rather quickly. And so a lot of times we'll have a lot of trouble setting our inversion time. First of all, because there's really not much contrast left, it's almost like, have you guys ever tried to do a TI scout on somebody where the IV infiltrated and you didn't notice? Oh. Right? Yeah. You're trying to set the TI and you're like, yeah. this looks weird. Like, this doesn't look right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because there's no contrast. Yeah. Like, should I chase and, it? You know, the, the other <laughs> yeah. part of that, too, is my amyloidosis, it can be very focal, but it's usually a very diffuse process. Right. You need to have some normal myocardium somewhere to decide, like, this is what we're going to try to null. If you don't have any normal myocardium, if it's all full of chock full of amyloid, where do you, what do you null? Right. So the key technical aspect with an inversion recovery sequence is that you should image every second beat. So every two beats, oh. you need to let the signal recover. That's a good point. Uh, so you can't yeah. do it every, every heartbeat. Some, so if you're, if, right. if you're Why? analyzing, uh, yeah. or, or if you're, if you're doing it for the first time, that's, that's one setting. Usually the vendors have it, uh, yeah. properly adjusted, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's a little trick. Oh, it's important man. not to, yeah. not to forget. That's, that's the other important point with cardiac, you know, Cardiac imaging, we have all these time constraints. You know, the heart's beating, the right. patient's breathing, they have to hold their breath. You know, there's the thing you have to remember with some of these pulse sequences, especially the T2, is, you know, it is like a horse basically, and you're beating it with, you know, and sometimes you have to let the horse rest so it can run again. Right. And if you just keep beating this horse and don't give it time to relax, if you don't <laughs> give this signal time to recover so that you have something to work with with your next pulse you can get some erroneous exams. Some, you know, you might, right. you know, your T2s might not look like there's any T2 signal because you didn't get it. Do you ride horses it. often? No, I, I, <laughs> I, I look like, well, I took my daughter on a horse ride a couple of years ago and I was too fat to ride a horse. I had to ride a mule. So, <laughs> That's awesome. So no, I'm a, I'm a mule man. So I guess there's a, once you get up beyond two bills, you know, you're, you're approaching funny. mule country. So. I'm, I'm not there yet. Which is fine, you know. Right. So the mule and I got along. We're yeah. both really stubborn and kind of right. slow. And, so. That's awesome. I didn't want to kind of talk about pathologies and what are some of the most common ones. Now, we talk, keep talking about infarct in layman's terms as a heart attack. But we also talk about amyloid as well. What are, if you would, just kind of break down some of these most common things that we see as far as pathologies goes and uh, what would be like some of the common treatments for it? Uh, Well, coronary disease, I mean, when we image patients who've sustained a heart attack, the importance is reestablishing flow in a blocked artery and then modifying risk factors so that patients don't do it again. So if you're smoking, stop smoking. If you're a diabetic, take your diabetic pills. If you're hypertensive, take your blood pressure pills. And if you have coronary disease, well, you also need blood thinners that reduce the risk that a blockage may occur. Blockages can occur from cholesterol plaques, but also because of blood clots that form inside as a result of the cholesterol plaque being exposed and then the the blood in your in your bloodstream to see this cholesterol that's yeah. and then just that's clumps on it and blocks now. the artery. Yeah, but I mean it's 
just I just want to pile on that with a tangent because I was listening to a podcast about evolution and the evolution of blood. Oh. If you think about blood is fascinating because right. it has to be be fluid and flow, you know, to get from one place to another, but also it has to clot. You know, if it didn't clot and you got a paper cut, you'd bleed to death. Oh yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting. And so one of the things, if you think of the blood, the cells that line your blood vessels and heart are very specialized. They're, they're, if blood, you know, blood is designed to kind of slide through that. And if blood sees something that's not that, it clots. It activates a clot. So what happens with these atherosclerotic plaques that rupture, you know, you've got this normal endothelium, well, not normal, but endothelium over it. But when that endothelium gets damaged and, and if you tear a hole in it, basically, you've got this thrombogenic stuff underneath it. And so when people die from a heart attack, they don't die because they have this really tight coronary artery that they've had for 10 years. And now it's went from 99% to 100. They die because they have a plaque and maybe they had a 30% lesion in their left main. And it, it went from 30 to 100% in a second. Oh. And that's when you die because you're not, you're not compensating for right. that. You know, right. I'm always amazed we see these patients that have bypass grafts you're like we very common we image them and you know 10 years out a lot of those bypass grafts are gone you know they're just not there anymore they're occluded oh, well the bypass wow. graft is kind of like a bridge so the patient can build collaterals blood really doesn't want to go through the bypass graft it will if it has to but over time you build these collaterals around and eventually the bypass graft if it's gone that's good it means your body didn't need it so well yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> right. Sometimes they block off and you don't want them to. <laughs> but so what's useful anyway. by doing an MRI in someone who's had a heart attack is you can see the extent of the heart attack. So the Where do you usually it. see it? Uh, it depends which artery has been uh, occluded. So if it's the LAD, the left anterior descending, it's going to be the anterior wall and the apex. If it's the right coronary, it's going to be the inferior wall, sometimes the right ventricle. And if it's the circumflex, Clint mentioned yeah. the circumflex earlier, we saw an example of a circumflex uh, infarct. That's the side of the heart. I mean, it's a heart attack is, is a heart attack is a heart attack. The thing that you may get from MR can also be obtained by echo, the function and stuff. But what the MR brings to the table is the amount of scar you have. Prognostically, that can be useful. What also happens is that for the reasons Clint mentioned, some people will develop heart attacks without having those cholesterol plaques, but they will develop the, the blood clots within their system. Mm. And we call this Myocardial infarction with normal coronary arteries, MINOCA. So that's uh, <laughs> everything. Everything can be an acronym. MR is actually a very useful technique to look at these patients who've had what seems like a heart attack. They have an abnormal EKG. Their blood enzymes have have, have gone up, and yet we don't have an explanation. Right. And some of the explanations may be inflammation of the heart from a virus, so myocarditis, mm -hmm. what we were talking about earlier. You can have other types, so like a vasculitis, some, some of an inflammation of the blood vessels, right. some hypercoagulable states, meaning your blood clot system is too eager to, to uh, form clots. So, um, so sometimes MR can be useful in those patients as well to, to see the extent. Uh, so finding how big the MI is and finding alternate causes when you don't have coronary disease. Yeah. And then the prognostic information is that the more gadolinium enhancement you have and the lower your power of your heart as determined by what we call the ejection fraction, yeah. normal about 55, 60%. So if it's very low, then these patients have to be watched really carefully. They should be on some, some specific medication. So mm -hmm. you can tailor the treatment following a heart attack with the use of an echo or an MRI to give the patient the best treatment 
including reestablishing coronary blood flow. So right. other diseases that we have, we have things like valve problems. So again, ultrasound is really good, echocardiography to diagnose. But we do have in our, in our bag of tricks in uh, CMR, we have face contrast, our PC cine. So we can measure blood flow and we can actually calculate how badly a valve leaks. So, and we don't need to give gadolinium how much regurgitation. So we can use that uh, to see. Sometimes ultrasound is really good, but sometimes we're not always sure of the amount of leakage. So that brings... So is that when you would order like velocity flows? Velocity flow, yes. For, yes, space okay. contrasts, uh, PC uh, image or velocity flows. Yeah. Okay. And then, so you can use that for that. Yeah. Congenital yeah. heart disease is one uh, that I use a lot. And that's that was one of the reasons I... I started getting interested in that. And there we use 3D angiography. And uh, mm. we had an example, I think. While you're pulling that up, Dr. Jokers, when you see these velocity flows and you're looking for aliasing and whatnot, um, what else is it that you're looking for? How do you, what is it that you use to, what tools do you use to evaluate that? So when we're talking about, let's phase contrast imaging in general. So basically that is the color Doppler slash pulse Doppler equivalent from Echo. So you've got, Phase contrast imaging. Mm -hmm. Basically what we're doing here is, I don't want to get too deep into the physics, but you can look at protons and see how many they are moving, in what direction they're moving, and how fast they're moving. And so from that information, you can get a variety of things. So you had mentioned aliasing. And so analogous to a color Doppler on Echo, basically when we're imaging using this technique, we have to decide what velocities we want to look at Right. going in. Mm -hmm. And if our velocity scale isn't set properly, if it's not broad enough, what happens is if you have some protons that are moving faster than your velocity scale, the scanner doesn't know where to put that signal because it ran out of space, right? So, you know, if you're set at 200 centimeters per second as your top and it's going 250, there's no 250. It doesn't know what to do. So it wraps it around and sticks it at the bottom. Now that is an immensely oversimplified <laughs> like explanation. <it> <laughs> I mean, we to get into phase aliasing, we could talk about, you know, the true nature of reality and the electro, <laughs> you know, you know, quantum electrodynamics and, you know, field theory. And an really into that. If we really, yeah, we would. To simplify, it's white right. blood imaging. Basically, it does exactly the opposite of fast spin echo, where the blood is black. Yeah. In velocity mapping, what we do is we basically add a supplemental equal but opposite direction gradient that are, that are, and that sort of nullify the signal of stationary tissue and highlight what moves in and out of the plane. So uh -huh. with blood blood imaging, we try to suppress the, the blood signal. With velocity mapping, we suppress everything else, yeah. but what travels oh, and the way the the, the the sequence is engineered is that the amount of um, phase change is proportional to the velocity of flow basically uh, so we can I take an that. educated guess and as, yeah. as Clint was saying often the patient's going to have an echo or something where we can measure blood velocity so we can ahead of time sort of say hey the echo got 250 on the on, on the velocity so <laughs> let's let's you know maybe let's do 260 or yeah. 270 yeah. so we can 
we make sure we don't alias. And and so we, we can take like a, an educated guess. Is that one of the recommendations? Like, do people usually have echoes right before they have an MRI or something? It's pretty common. Pretty common, right? It's 80%. Of no. Yeah, typically echo is more of a first line test because it's cheaper. It's faster uh, to do. Uh, it's real time. It's portable. So if, whether you're in the ICU, the eMERGE, or, or you're everywhere, or outpatient, right. yeah. the machine can be wheeled in. Yeah. Yeah. The MR is a little more <laughs> not quite as Fort Knox. It's like a little more right. more of a secure yeah. secure area. So we got to be really careful with, uh, with our especially magnets. where we work. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk about 4D flow. Oh yeah. And so when we're talking about phase contrast imaging, what we're doing here is we're we when we set up our flow gradients, mm-hmm. our phase gradients rather, to look at flow. Basically, what the tradition has been, we can look in one direction. Right. Head, foot, left, right, up, down. Right. Whatever we want to set that direction to. But we can look in, basically, we can look in one direction. Mm-hmm. And the it would be ideal to look in three directions right. because we have three spatial dimensions, right? So you right. could go head, foot, left, right, front, back. And then by looking at in any particular spot in your scan volume, any voxel, how that changes kind of up, down, left, right, front, back, you can actually take those three coordinate systems into account and get an actual true direction and velocity. And so the problem with looking in one direction, say we're looking head foot, Mm -hmm. is the equation that we use to figure all this out, I think has a cosine function in it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not exactly perpendicular 90 degrees, for every little bit you're off, you become less accurate. You lose a peak velocity. And another thing I will mention too is a weakness of MR compared to echo is when we're using this one-dimensional technique like this, we're looking and we're we're like setting up an imaging plane and scanning it, but it's not a real time. We're like, we scan it and then we look at the image. Mm -hmm. With echo, you've got a probe and you're looking around and you can kind of like turn and twist and go like, oh, here's the worst spot, the vena contractus so-called. And so you can kind of dial in right away on that. With MR, it's kind of like you're chasing your tail. Like, all right, we need to go up a little bit. And then the patient takes a different size breath and now you're too high or something, you know? And so one of the advantages of of the ability to to look in all three directions and, and do that is now what we can do is we have this volume of 4D data. The fourth dimension is time. We can load that into a post-processing program and retrospectively change our imaging planes to wherever we want. Because typically MR will underestimate velocities and flows relative to echo because we can't get exactly on the tightest spot or exactly 90 degrees. Right, perpendicular. Yeah. Now, is that something you do on circle of 42? Or yes. Like, okay. Yeah. And, but all the processing is retrospective with this. We can't real. you know what I mean? Like you're, right. you're going to give me a something, I'm going to throw it in a circle 42 and process it. Now, the 4D flow, you can imagine every single, a, a voxel is a pixel in 3D. So on a 2D display, we can show, you know, height, you know, front, back, left, right, you know. Yeah. A voxel is that plus slice thickness. And so right. with MR, you know, we we could really get into space time now. We're talking about, you know, is is the universe pixelated, right? And so <laughs> right. Like, but, you know, there's a, sorry. another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a smallest unit, kind of this length with height, and that's the voxel. And we can't get any more 
precise than that. We're more assigning signal. And so when, when Rensoir was talking about spatial resolution earlier, mm-hmm. that's the rate limiting step. So I can, if I can tell how much signal is coming out of a voxel, right. but I can't tell anything beyond like it's coming from this part of the voxel or that part of the voxel. So sure. that's, that's your rate limiting step. But so for this 4D flow technique, we have all this information for all these voxels. You can imagine you have this this phase information of the cardiac cycle in all three dimensions, and we're going to kind of like look at add them together and try to figure out what's really going on. The post-processing is immensely time-consuming. It requires very powerful computers, very powerful programs. And so the 4D flow is just now kind of coming on the scene. It's going to be great because we can it's very much like CT in that you get a, a data set that you can slice and dice retrospectively and right. so we can dial in on the tightest spot and make sure we're 90 degrees so there's no gap anymore yeah 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 but the problem is these sequences take a long time right. and com- this is where compressed sensing comes back in compressed sensing is just a, it's a mathematical technique a fourier transform is a mathematical technique right. it's just a different mathematical technique basically to take I don't want to get into sparsity and all that kind all of right. stuff, but basically it's math magic. And <laughs> like so by using this math magic, we can take what used to be unattainable, a sequence that would maybe take 40 minutes just to run one sequence and do it in five to 10 minutes, which is a little more useful. They're usually free breathing, you know, yeah. gated, cardiac gated and respiratory gated. But that will that will be a game changer, I think, for car, for cardiac MR, the, the ability to do this 4D flow. Because now think about it. When I, say we want to do a flow quant on a congenital heart case. We're going to flow quant the main PA, flow quant the aorta, flow quant the left and right PA at a minimum. If any of those are out of plane or if there's aliasing, we have to repeat it. Right. With 4D flow, it's one thing. And you have you can do flow anywhere you want. Oh, nice. Every vessel, you know. Oh, so it makes it a lot easier because especially if you've got patients with complex baffles or rerouted anatomy, you can kind of add up the blood coming from all these different spots. Right. Now, here's the problem. You only have one velocity scale, right? Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to pick. If you get it wrong on a 4D flow and it took 12 minutes, now you got to do another 12-minute, right? Right. <laughs> so, but the, the bigger your velocity scale, the less accurate your measurements become. So if you want to measure the aorta, but you also want to measure pulmonary veins, which have very slow flow, you can't do it. You need a a tight scale for the veins and an open scale for the arteries. And so they're working on figuring out ways to kind of do two at the same time kind of thing. What's the fourth dimension? Time. Time. Good. The thing that's important, though, also is that when we use velocity mapping is – we try to pick a spot that's relatively quiescent. We try to stay away from turbulent areas when we want to measure oh, flow. Yeah. When you have, <laughs> so is that why you go just proximal to the valve, or, or like we go or, to the ST junction instead of at the sinuses of Valsalva because the sinuses of Valsalva, there's lots of yeah, aliasing. Gotcha. But we want laminas. <laughs> so this introduces flow disturbances. I mean, the flow dynamics are are are, are quite complex. So you want to pick an area that's relatively calm, so mm-hmm. maybe the sinotubular junction or, or ascending aorta, and the same thing for the pulmonary artery. The thing that ECHO does better is that it has in its armamentarium something called continuous wave Doppler, and that is able to take the maximum velocity. So it can always overdo MR by obtaining higher velocities because it's able to 
obtain the maximum velocity along an axis. Oh. It does not have any precision in terms of location, however. So what you there's always a trade-off in, 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 in science and in imaging. For sure. What we have here is we're better than ultrasound in my, in my comparison, uh, my experience, to measure flow. We're perhaps not as good to measure peak velocity because we're not necessarily at the area that's the narrowest where the velocity accelerates the most. And, right. and Clint right. called that the vena contractor. That's, that's the technical term for for that so so that's one thing so uh, certainly I mean it's a useful thing that we can use for for flow quantitation we can use it to look at shunts if there's a hole in the heart or between the uh, yeah. the, the two circulations you can compare the flow in the pulmonary artery and the aorta and understanding how the flow dynamics are where the hole is you can deduct how much shunting there is and and that can determine an indication for for an operation for example if you don't mind, just explain to an idiot like me what a hole in the heart is. <laughs> a hole in the heart is a common congenital malformation. The heart develops in the fetus between the, let's say, the sixth and the 12 weeks of gestation. It starts earlier. It starts, you know, since right. since day one, basically. Yeah. But it becomes a heart with time. The blood cells organize into tubes, and these tubes basically come together and fold on it, on themselves. Mm -hmm and generate through kind of a miraculous uh, process, <laughs> right. valves and ventricles and atria. During the embryogenesis, which is the, the, when, when, when you have an embryo that becomes a fetus, the tubes need to close. There needs to be what we call septation, which is closure within those cardiac tubes to separate uh -huh. the circulation that goes to the lungs from that that goes to right. the, the systemic circulation. Right. And yes. there are little mistakes. The commonest hole in the heart or septal defect is one between the ventricles. So is it like a fistula sort of? You could say that. I mean, it's basically a, a hole that, that allows blood from the high-pressure chamber, typically the left ventricle, to send blood to the right ventricle and pulmonary artery. So that's How detriment the, is it to... If it's very small, none. Mm. But if it's fairly large, what it can do is it can, with, with the amount of blood that travels through the lungs, it can overwhelm lung circulation, damage the pulmonary arteries and cause something called pulmonary hypertension, which is not, not a good thing. So those are for certain shots. Not all holes in the heart will cause pulmonary hypertension. And again, I'm an idiot, but I'm curious, are you able to like, is that something you could graft or and the it's tissue not, could regenerate? It does sometimes, yes. Many, if not most of the septal defects can close spontaneously. Not all of them. If you have a very large one, it will grow, but it it's it's a bit of a race against time. When the baby is just born, you have this large hole, and as the baby grows, the hole tends to close down a little bit, but sometimes it just takes too much time. And if the doctors don't intervene and patch that hole, either through surgery or sometimes in older um, babies and, and adults and adolescents, uh, we can use uh, devices that can be implanted by catheter. These are also available. Oh, yeah. So you can close these uh, defects because before they, they cause pulmonary hypertension. So you're able to diagnose it while it's Typically it presents with a heart murmur that becomes manifest in the weeks that follow birth. The more right. complex defects, the ones that have like septal defects or missing arteries yeah. that cause mixture of blue and red blood will be 
much more manifest sometimes as early as birth. So those complex defects, which are fortunately very rare, can be diagnosed shortly after birth. Thank you. I don't always have a cardiologist across the table. I, yeah. <laughs> cyanotic is the term, like cyanotic heart disease. Oh, okay. How common when is you're it? blue. Yeah, cyanosis is when you send deoxygenated blood out into the systemic circulation, and it means different things in kids versus adults. Does that mean so. that you could be ischemic as a result? It could be typically, but ischemic heart disease in children is is pretty rare, and uh, you know there are a few things that cause it, but it's not heart ischemia, it's body ischemia, basically. Like, you know, blue toes, blue fingers, blue lips, you know. So, so congenital heart defects occur in about 1% of individual and complex defects like those that cause cyanosis is about a tenth of that. So in in Pretty so rare. let's say one percent, it's point one percent. It's very <laughs> yeah. it's very rare. Point one percent. So ninety nine point nine percent of those born do not have these complex cyanotic defects. Wow. And they used to be a death sentence, really. You know, as recent as what the forties or fifties. When did they start yeah, open the, heart surgery? Yeah. I mean, there's there are things now like an secundum ASD that somebody can fix through your femoral vein in wow. what 15 minutes now. Outpatient procedure, right? Wow. And it, whereas you know, in the, the 30s, it was a death sentence. Wow. So it is really there any is. Pharmaceutical thing that you could do to kind of help gen regenerate that tissue. We don't have that yet, but okay. once you have pulmonary hypertension, uh, unfortunately, if you if your defect was not corrected and you have pulmonary hypertension, then it's no longer time to correct it. You have to treat with medications, and there's some medications that can be given to people with pulmonary hypertension to reduce uh, the, the, uh, the vascular impedance, uh, so the stress, and those individuals uh, sometimes can, can go on to have a heart-lung transplant sometimes if they have pulmonary hypertension and a, and a sick heart. Sounds like you're talking about stem cell therapy, though. Well, that's what I, kind of what I was yeah. thinking, yeah. It's on the horizon. It's, it's I, mean, the horizon. I think there is research yeah. on going that. I'm, we, nice. I know some I don't countries. Yeah. Yeah. Where you could regrow like a a, a, a septum or or, yeah. or, yeah. or that is probably research that is ongoing right now. I don't think Great. it's ready for clinical prime time yet, but I, I think, think maybe ten years. It's hard to say, right? It's, it's <laughs> FDA, hard to say. So yeah. many hurdles. Right? But it seems like it's going that direction. I mean, they're using stem cells to regenerate like labrums and stuff like that within joint spaces. And yeah. you're avoiding surgeries that way. But Ears I mean, yeah, and if you could avoid a heart surgery. Right. Oh, my God. The or thing heart is, though, yeah, it depends on what, what you need to do. But, you know, the great thing about stem cells is you put them next to some cells and they turn into those cells, right. you know, but getting the stem cells where they need to go and keeping them there is the logistics part of, the of it all. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine in the heart, Oh yeah. What's moving and beating. So it's got all this blood flowing through. How like, are we going to make these cells that don't yet know they're supposed to be heart cells stick? And I've never <laughs> given this any thought, but in my mind, I'm thinking if you grafted it, right. And you created that link between, and then so you, you gave that. An, you think you take a chunk of know. stem cells and put them. <laughs> I'm probably making myself like an idiot. But, but the thing is, how do you get them there without doing surgery? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And like you said earlier, it's a lot less invasive now. You're going through your femoral artery just down in your groin. So it's not like it's, you know, they're cracking your chest anymore. Or but anything. they are. I mean, they're doing experiments in pigs and rabbits and all that kind of stuff where they yeah. are cracking their chest and yeah. putting these patches when fused with stem cells, you know. And I did want to... Um, 
um, since we are just talking about hearts and you mentioned pigs at our facility soon, we're told that we're going to be doing some research on cardiac scanning for mm-hmm. pigs and stuff like that. And I'm curious about you two, your impression of the similarities between the two anatomies. Cause I, I tell you, um, when I was in x-ray school, I was given, you know, the assignment of a class presentation or whatever it is that you wanted. Well, I chose to do hearts and I brought in some pig hearts. Yeah. as like a visual aid and I I, I brought up a, an example of how I think and again I'm an idiot but probably back in the 70s or so there was an experiment where they actually did a transplant it was successful for I think about 12 minutes or so oh like a heart into we, a human a transplant? pig heart into a human yeah. heart. we I was actually involved in a yeah. research project yeah. at my last place where we actually scanned oh, these on 3T Skyris they were pigs uh-huh. Look and real quick. we would take a patch with stem cells on it and basically they would give the pig an LED infarct and then put the patch on top of the infarct and see if the stem cells would like regrow the myocardium. Sort of the same concept uh, then. Yeah, the same kind of concept. But when it comes to imaging pig anatomy versus human anatomy, I'll tell you, the first thing I noticed, <laughs> pigs are buff oh, compared to humans. Like pig, they, yeah. their musculature <laughs> is way more developed <laughs> to the point where you get artifacts, dielectric effect from all the water, oh. from all the all the muscle cells. So you don't really appreciate how weak humans are. You know, even like weightlifters, you know, they've got nothing on. Right. So it's like imaging the rock every day. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, pigs have a lot of muscle. So it's a good model to compare to the human in terms of the way the the heart is made. I mean, if you compare to other animals, there's been attempts at other animals. I mean, we use valves, right? Right. I mean, dogs for one have, I mean, they're cute and they're nice and we like them. <laughs> some are. Like dogs. Friends, right? Some are. But, some, the, but one of the advantages that dogs have over humans is a much richer amount of collateral flow. Oh. Uh, whereas pigs does not have that. The pig's actually a very, very delicate heart. I mean, I remember imaging doing CMR in, in, a, in a pig model for infarction and a stress model. And these, whenever you, you, you occlude a, a, an artery in a pig, they arrest. They, they, they're really, because they have a very poor collateral flow, sort of like humans, but, right. but worse even. So yeah. they're very, very delicate, and you have to be really careful uh, if you do experiments on pigs. Rats or mice, well, the thing is that they're smaller, and the heartbeats are like, well, a, a, yeah, a, a rat is maybe, you know, two, three hundred beats per minute, and mouse four to six hundred beats per minute. So it's like, uh, it's just like, so it, it defies the capability. Yes, you can you can do high field uh, imaging at seventeen and a little little bore and you know and, right. and, and do that. But I mean, it's it's just a different uh, ball game there. Right. Uh, so in terms of uh, so that's why I mean it's uh, just close. Again, I found it interesting. I went to uh, Food City and bought some pig hearts and brought it into the class. You can just buy pig hearts out there. Like yeah, that? Food City, you can. Oh, the way cool. also humans are made, if you look at our shape, we're sort of, uh, I guess, horizontal. We don't have a deep. They're round. Yeah. So when you do imaging, I've done a fair amount of, 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 of ultrasound imaging on rats and on mice. The windows are, are, are not the same. The four-chamber right. view that we can easily get in humans because the heart is sort of splayed right. is much more difficult to get in a rat or in a mouse uh, even yeah. if you have the proper uh, probes. And then, so so things are, are a lot more cylindrical in rats, mice, and pigs mm. compared to uh, humans, which are, we're, we're flatter, basically. Right. Our thorax are flatter. I mean, if you're a big smoker, you, you can get barrel chested after, <laughs> yeah. after many years of, of smoking, but we're typically fairly flat. And our heart is, so we're, we're, we're I guess, easier to image in terms of ultrasound. And, oh, and I guess... 
MR doesn't care because it's 3D. I'm it's, curious because you mentioned uh, chronic people. smokers were just long-term smokers. But what about people with alcoholism or something like that? Does that affect any heart disease? Yes, it can, actually. Alcohol is a bit of a depressor of cardiac function. So if you drink a lot, you can sometimes develop what's called a cardiomyopathy, where your heart muscle is weakened by the alcohol. The other thing is that this depressant effect sometimes can cause stuttering in the electrical activity. Oh. So typically, if you go party out on Saturday night, we, see, we often see as cardiologists on Saturday morning in the emergency room, a 30-year-old who yeah. comes in with what we call atrial right. fibrillation <laughs> yeah. uh, because of uh, the effect of alcohol. So right. you've got to be really careful. Some people are very sensitive. It is probably genetically determined, your, right. your genetic propensity to arrhythmia and your genetic ability to metabolize alcohol. And it's sometimes the byproducts that, that, can, that can also play a role. So, so don't drink yourself into an arrhythmia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Plus, I feel like for the liver, it's it's hard. Uh, right. I'm happy. I feel like we've covered a lot today. I appreciate you guys being here. Yeah. Um, I am curious though. Is there anything that you feel like maybe you would like to touch up on before we close out the episode? Go ahead, Francois. Anything Specific you guys are excited about that's coming? I mean, other than stem cell, I know we kind of touched about a little bit. Yeah, 4D, 4D, I mean, I think, I think a, a 4D flow definitely is going to change the way we do cardiac MRI. You know, we, we had had a little experience with strain imaging, segmental strain. You know, that that's another thing I think that's up and coming. But I, I think in general, what we're going to see is... It's computers, basically, that are changing it. It's Moore's Law, you know. It's, right. That is really... Right. You know, one of the things that people are, are always talking about in things like, you know, venues like this is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Right. And that is already starting to change some of the things we do. Right. You're going to see MRI, I think, continue to get safer, to get faster, to get better. The types of pulse sequences we can do are going to get better. And then the other thing that you're going to see that people don't really think about is the post-processing, right? I mean, oh, that's right. going on in the background. But, you know, a 4D flow case of complex congenital heart disease, right. it might, even with the best software available now, you know, it might take two hours to process it. Whereas, you know, in the future, who knows? Who knows? You know, it might be... Automatic you know, and it's done right when you send it over there, right? Yeah, it's going to take time because cardiac is hard enough. Yeah. But that subset of cardiac congenital heart disease. So, you know, we have some algorithms now that are pretty good at, like, automatically segmenting the left ventricle. But feed them, you know, a DTGA status plus baffle with a systemic ventricles or morphologic right ventricle. It doesn't know what to do. It just confuses them. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> a word for the technologists. I mean, um, as we, you know, we've talked about in this uh, in this segment, that yeah. it is a complex area of MRI. Right. We do have credentialing for physicians. You know, level one, level two, level three, and I think. You know, if realistically, if you are a technologist and you want to get into cardiac MRI, it takes practice. Uh, and you got to watch this podcast, by the way. No. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this will help. <laughs> but also, uh, you need to read up on the anatomy, right. understand the physiology, basic uh, stuff. Right. We know for us as physicians, to achieve a certain level, we need, you know, you know, like a level one is five is fifty cases, a level two one hundred and fifty cases, and a level three three hundred cases oh, wow. in training. So I'm just saying that. You have to be patient, Right. you have to read, and you have to have a good amount of support uh, team around you, Sure. and it will not happen overnight. You need to do cases, and it takes time. These require, even, even if the vendors are offering great tools to help you with the planning, there's always stuff that happens, right. you know? So I think it's probably one of the most difficult areas of, of MRI. 
Yeah. And I think that yeah. I think we need more people to, to understand. And I feel like it. I can relate to what you're talking about because I'm just a new cardiac scanner myself. Level so. one. Oh, is that what you want to call it? <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm a three. <laughs> but I haven't done 300 cases yet, but um, probably done about a 50 maybe. But um, you're right, though. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know, right? Yeah, a lot of different factors you're taking in when you first come in. And it's a lot of unknown. So you, the anatomy itself is kind of new to you. You get kind of a foundation of cross-sectional anatomy, but usually heart anatomy is it usually you know it's it's different from person to person it has its own its own anatomical planes you know i guess msk is kind of analogous but with msk you know there's only so much right a joint can be like you know i mean a joint is a joint like you know (laughs) you you still have like your three basic planes is just relative to the joint but with cardiac you know you've got your you know horizontal long axis Vertical long axis, right. three chamber, LV outflow sure. tract, right ventricular outflow tract, right. perpendicular view. I mean, it's you know, it's it's just takes time. And he mentioned a good support group behind you. And uh, if you can, if you lucky enough to have a Dr. Marcott that you work with, that yes. you can ask questions oh, often because he's always happy to answer them. And I find that a lot of you guys are happy to answer them. Yeah, well, we enjoy it. We like to do. Well. Right? I mean, that's why we're not every doctor is approachable, but obviously these two are. So, yeah, um, <laughs> no, thank you. So we're letting you Honestly. guys borrow them through this. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Right. <laughs> One tool that I found really useful, certainly from the cardiology standpoint, the the, the European Society of Cardiology has a nice app uh, yes. that's called CMR Guide, oh, and yeah, it's very well uh, very well made that you can download. Basically, it offers you a lot of information on the organization of a uh, of an exam, the scan planes, some of the indications, and it provides very nice video uh, content and, and examples of some of the uh, sequences used. So if you're interested in that, I would definitely check it out. They also have a calculator that comes with it that can help you quantify ventricular mass uh, volumes. I think it is, yes. Wow. They have resources in congenital heart disease. They have a a physics handbook. It explains things really quite clearly. So uh, the Europeans have been uh, pioneers in in cardiac MRI. Physicians in the UK, in Germany uh, in particular, have played major roles in the advancement of CMR. And I... uh, I want to tip my hat to 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 their hard work yeah, and what they've done. Sure. Shout them out for Big sure. Awesome. Out. You mentioned earlier that you you see safety being something that is more a focus in the future, but you also mentioned earlier in the podcast that you see like Tesla strengths becoming reduced. Uh, you know the magnet itself. And that's definitely, totally. and that's kind of related to like safety. Yeah. So you know, as as magnetic field strength increases, of course, you know the danger increases. Yeah. And one of the other things too that a lot of people don't think about is when you have a magnetic field. You know, we've got this magnetic field inside the bore. That's three Tesla. There's a magnetic field outside the bore. That's got to balance that out, right? right? Exactly. And so one of the things that engineers have been doing and doing well is they they call that a fringe field. Mm-hmm. They're getting better at shaping that and getting it smaller. But there's a downside to that because as you approach a three Tesla magnet with something ferromagnetic, in the olden times, you would feel a tug and maybe the tug would get stronger within a foot. Oh, right. Now with those really tight fringe fields, because they're trying to, you know, get it all in and out of, you know, zone three as much as possible. Right. It, you might go from a tug to getting ripped out of your hands yeah. in that foot, yeah. you know, and in the future, it's not inconceivable as we move towards weaker, lower field strength and used, you know, computers and technology to kind of compensate for that. 
one of the big thrusts in MR is getting away from using hundreds and hundreds of liters of liquid helium. So I know there are a few scanners or at least one scanner coming out of the market. Yeah, I think it uses six liters yeah, of liquid helium. Pretty impressive. Such right? that, you know, one of the things is when you're putting an MRI scanner somewhere, it weighs a lot is one thing. But the other thing is if you ever have to quench it, so I don't, I don't want to get into like superconductors and how cool they are and all this kind of stuff. But <laughs> right. the bottom line is if you want to turn an MRI magnet off, that's a good, a good point here is it's always on. The right. MRI is always on. always on. The magnetic field's always on. The only way to turn it off quickly is to heat it up. The only way to heat it up is to evaporate out all the helium. helium. Yeah. And so you need a vent capable of taking 2,700 liters of liquid helium, which is about to turn into tens of thousands of liters of gas. <laughs> and so it limits where you can put an MR. Right. Now, if you only have six liters, that becomes you know however many hundreds of liters of gas, you can actually quench the magnet inside. You can have like a chamber. Oh. You know, and like just divert the gas somewhere else and turn the magnet off. And so it saves helium too. And then you can bring it back. So now you put the magnet wherever. You don't have to worry about the vent. So that's a big deal. I could foresee now, this is just me, but in the far distant future, you could potentially turn a magnet on and off that way, right? The problem is you have to shim, you know, and all that. And every time you quench it, it kind of, it's hard on the gradients. Mm. But, you know, the engineers have dealt with much more difficult problems in the past. We can detect gravitational waves. You know, right, we should be able right. to <laughs> exactly. to do that. But yeah, in the future, I could foresee one of the one of the big things for MR MR safety would be basically being able to turn the magnetic field off and on. And maybe if you can turn it on, you can turn it on slowly, and then a patient can be like, ah, right. I forgot. I have a I, you know, and I eyelash curler in my pocket. You know, <laughs> right. I feel it tugging. So, you know, I, I think that there's, there are a lot of exciting things on the horizon and I don't want to get into my philosophy on life, but you know, if you could look back at kind of what things have developed and what don't, the course of history and, and kind of where we go, it's really capricious. And a lot of it is based off of you know, just like random chance or luck. And so honestly, I have no idea Right. what's going to stick Where, and what's going to, you know, go I, by the wayside. But, for sure. Yeah. Dr. Marcotte. I just had another comment in, in terms of educational materials. The Society for Cardiovascular Magnetic Resonance, SCMR, is also a very important site yeah. based uh, here in the U.S. Thank you. But for cardiologists, radiologists, technologists oh, yeah. worldwide, yeah, SCMR, and I think that's a really great uh, uh, website, a lot of educational material also produces the journal of uh, cardiac MRI, uh, do they have um, a forum JCMR. They've got great teaching modules for cases, and it's a great uh, forum for technologists. It's only people who are interested in MRI. So it highlights the importance of collaboration between radiology and, and cardiology yeah. and the very special and important place of technologists within the field of cardiac MRI. So wow. that's another great uh, tool and I wanted to make sure I made a plug for them. I think yeah. that they're doing great work and I think it's, uh, and it's a great organization. This will all definitely be in the show notes below. Don't try to have to write everything down. We'll definitely leave a link for you at the bottom. So, so Dr. Joker, Dr. Marcotte said, as far as techs out there, we'd really like for you to kind of focus your attention on learning the cross-sectional anatomy, learning the physiology of the heart itself. What, what would your message be to those MR techs that are just learning how to scan at cardiacs? Well, I, I th- of course, that's the most important is right. being, a, being able to appreciate the anatomy. 
because you need to be able to do that to even get started in the physiology. And, but kind of the next level is going to be how, understanding the physics to some extent. Right. And, you know, physics is a wormhole or rabbit hole that will go, there's no limit to how deep it goes, right? We really don't understand. I mean, what is time? What is space? Right. What makes a thing a thing, right? I mean, <laughs> Let's not get these deep. seem like the base, like <laughs> right. we don't know the answers we to that, right? Yeah, so it's a tough question. Physics is, uh, that's why I like about physics. It's it's very, you know, we th- if we fall into this trap of thinking that, well, this is why things are T2 and right. this is why they're T1. Well, we have an explanation that fits why things are the way they are. But, you know, Newton had a great, explanation of gravity and it sent a man to the moon right but it couldn't explain a small variation in the orbit of mercury and so now we have general relativity and right. relativity is great but there you know we are creating theories and models that you know, explain things and predict things but that doesn't mean that that is why things right. are what they are and so well, getting back to the physics being able to understand basic artifacts and how to troubleshoot them yes. i think is very critical with MR because, you know, I've seen it before. There are texts that will say, hey, we can't do this. You know, this isn't going to be great. But then you change around a little bit and, uh, you know, it's okay. We can get by, you know, knowing when to use pulse gating versus, you know, if ECG gating isn't working, uh, knowing, you know, when to try to revert back to spoiled gradient echo instead of steady state free possession, knowing why spin echo has less artifact in which sequences are spin echo right. versus, you know, gradient recalled echo. So sure. I would, I would, you know, I'm always talking about the physics side of things. And I would say it's, in, you know, you don't have to be a physicist, but it's important to know the, the common artifacts right. and how to troubleshoot them. For sure. That would be my plug. Yeah. And if you really want to get into the why of MR physics, there's a website called what, MRIQuestions.com. Oh, yeah, I think. MRIQuestions. But that, you can really get into the weeds on that website. But, nice. like, you know. And we've referenced that website before. It's a yeah. website that we visited before, for sure. And I'll so, put that at the bottom of the show what, notes So that's well. a message that you would say for MR techs that are learning how to scan. Uh, what would you say, uh, cardiac studies, what would you? What would your message be for your peers, those those RADs that are looking Residents. to be cardiothoracic RADs? I mean, the same thing. I, you know. Understand. You, know, you got to yeah. know the physics. We have a luxury where we are to have Francois and have, you know, people like me that can get on the, you know, you can tell me on the phone what's going on and we can troubleshoot it, you know, or in person. But lots of places may or may not have that right. that kind of ability in being able to, to kind of troubleshoot that. You know, I would say for for cardiologists and radiologists out there you know, who are interested in cardiac imaging, just having a, a good understanding of the basic physics, because by understanding the physics, you can predict what's going to make things better, what's going to make things worse. So, you know, if somebody can't hold their breath, you're not going to run any segmented sequences. Right. They just they're going to be garbage. Right. You know. So you automatically, you know. All right, I'm cut that, cut that, yeah. cut that. Yeah. You know. So. Well, you know, as a backup, what we'll do is we'll just put these guys' phone numbers in the show notes as well. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, page, just page me anytime. You guys, yeah, it's two in the morning. He's and half you kidding, but he's half serious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Markov, for your uh, for your peers out there, what, what advice would you give as far as MR specific advice would you give to those other cardiologists? I think it's a great field to work in. I think uh, we're now more and more 
focusing on what we call multimodality imaging. So that's uh, in, in cardiology, certainly uh, we have three big tracks, four big tracks, let's say. We have those of us who like, uh, who want to do angiograms, cath, angioplasties. So interventional, we have electrophysiology, which takes care of, uh, which is also an, a, an invasive uh, uh, strategy that deals with arrhythmias, but procedures, pacemakers, that type of thing. We have uh, heart failure transplant. These are specialists for that uh, population, for growing population. And then finally, what I do, non-invasive imaging. And more and more, we are advising our trainees to be good in more than one modality. I think for me personally, I think MR has helped me become a better echocardiographer. And I think uh -huh. echo helped me understand MR better, although the physics has no common correlation, common correlation <laughs> to it. Uh, you have to start right from, from scratch. Right. I think that the heart is the heart. So if you look at it with ultrasound or with MR, and in the case of Clint, well, you do look at it with CT and MR. So we come from different angles uh, okay. towards the MR. And I think that's the, that's what makes the strength of our team. I think wow. you need to work uh, and collaborate. And I think you need to to build bridges with, uh, with other professionals. Yeah. Uh, you need to be collegiate about it. Yeah. And I think... Uh, it's the way you. It's the way the the world should work. That's right. that would be my take. That I think we need more collaboration. And I think cardiologists, uh, when they order, because often they're the ones with the patients, but there are other professionals that will order tests, internists and family practitioners that also may want to. Uh, but it, MR is kind of a very specialized tool, not a first line tool. I think it's it's it can help answer some questions about characterization, infarct, scar, flow. It's very flexible. It's got great added value, but it has a few Achilles heel, in particular metal implants are, are a bit more of a problem than with CT. Understanding that, understanding that patients with irregular heartbeats, older individuals who don't have the endurance to do breath holds right. may, have a, may have a hard time with these. It's a test that takes a little bit of time. So when you prescribe a, an MRI, you have to tell the patient, this is a longer test. This is physically more demanding. Right. Even though we're, 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 we're doing our best to do it as quickly as we can, and, and you both know when you do it, you're, you, you want to get this done right. and right. You know, efficiently, but it's, it's a test that takes time, basically. But you get a lot of information out of it, and I think that that would be... Uh, so that would be my message for the yeah. trainee and then for the practitioner. Understanding the strengths and weaknesses of CT, MR, ultrasound, uh -huh. and nuclear. And I think these are... You bring up an excellent point too. The heart is the heart. And you know, I, it's amazing how many radiologists won't actually look at an echo. You know, oh, right. it's, it's an ultrasound of the heart, right? <laughs> I mean, no it's, it's, though, huh? Right, right. They I mean, sure, they throw all these numbers on there, you know. <laughs> right. Half of them no one ever looks at. But, you know, MR is headed that way, too. So, <laughs> right, that's true. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the heart is the heart. And, you know, I think that you should be able to recognize pathology on all these different modalities. You know, it, it is a little bit tricky because the artifacts are different, you know, and, they just have a different look and feel to them. But at the end of the day, it's still the heart. And so don't don't be afraid to to look at a nuke med perfusion study or to look at an echo just for radiologists out there because, you know, and obviously, you know, number one, collaborate. Talk to cardiologists, you know. We are all allies in trying to take care of these patients right. and get the information people need to take care of them. And so, you know, at the end of the day, 
what we do is is take care of people and try to make people well or keep them well or yeah so get the best outcomes right yeah and we all need to work together so that's that's been one i think the biggest you know the advancement in medicine over the past couple centuries has been olden times you had the one doc that did everything right and now we have this subspecialized system now that you know there there are downsides because there now there are all these cooks in the kitchen (laughs) and the right hand might not know what the left hand is saying (laughs) right but you know if the left hand never asked the right hand what it's doing of course it's it's not going to know right so we need to collect and technology i think is going to play a role in helping us kind of communicate more we're all part of the same team trying to do the same thing ultimately so Cool. Well, thank you guys again. This yeah, we great. do like to wrap up every show with uh, a couple questions. One, so basically what is, and we'll start left to right. So what has been the most satisfying or fulfilling experience you've had since starting your career in radiology? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's loaded. Yeah. That's By the way, he was prepa- we did prepare him for this. Question. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, what we're doing, like I said, is we're taking care of people. Right. And radiologists work very much behind the scenes. It's very rare to get any kind of feedback. Right. So on those rare cases, we're either a referring clinician or an actual patient reaches out and says, hey, you figured something out that nobody else could figure out. Or, you know, something. a lot of times it's an incidental finding, like, oh. you know, 16-year-old girl with thyroid cancer, you know, incidental fine, you know, right. or like, you know, a 34-year-old with breast cancer that somebody picked up, right. you know, it's just feeling like I really directly contributed because it sometimes it's a slog, you know, when you're right. looking through 100 ICU films, you know, and, you know. <laughs> you're desensitized. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, and, and, but, you know, we do all make a difference. And, and so I would, sure. I would say, you know, the few instances where I actually get feedback from patients or from clinicians where they're grateful or thankful to me that that really brings things back into focus right. um because i you know i do work in a dark room without windows so. <laughs> right for you dr marcotte i've been a cardiologist for 30 years and i've enjoyed every day i mean nice. uh, for me uh i come into work and you know it's uh it's not a, you know, obviously you're, you get a high when you diagnose something and you, you make a, a difference in a patient's uh, oh, life. Stuff, yeah. um, you agonize when you've missed something and you, you haven't been able to deliver. That happens. It right. happens more when you're young, but it happens at any, at any time. So right. I try to stay humble. When I have a brief moment of victory, I enjoy it. Right. But then you have to forget it. Yeah. Right. And you have to get right back to work because... The next case is around the corner, and yeah. if you're not sharp and you think you've got it all made and you think you're like, ooh la la, yeah. boy, medicine has a way of reminding you that you are human, yeah. fallible, yeah. and you can make mistakes. Yeah. So wow. for me, it's been a great experience. I've, I've worked in some great institutions. I've met some great people, patients, colleagues, nurses, technologists. I guess for me, it's been the team. It's been the adventure. I think... There's nothing that poisons a team more than people who don't work together. Yeah. And I think the sad parts of my career would have been when, when I've had to work with individuals that, that didn't think as a, as a team. That, right. That, now, you know, we, we all have our, 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 our good days and our bad days, and we go through hardship. We go right. through, we each have our, our, our challenges. But I think it's trying to, when once you, you enter the hospital, you have to say, I'm here to help. And, yeah, uh, right. 
and uh, and and that's it. I feel very fortunate to have chosen this line of work. I'm really happy with with my choice, and hopefully, I can help people ah, some more. That's yeah, amazing. That's, and I would say my uh, experience just being around you guys, you guys seem super enthused about what you do. Yeah, so. uh, it's and it spreads like wow. How nice is it sure. to be able to do something that you actually like and want to do every day? Right? We're a minority it's, for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. just so refreshing. You know, like I will say. Lately, I've been getting more and more kind of administrative duties, you know, right. and just, you know, that's not what I'm trained to do. That's yeah. not why I went there. You it's know, a long I mean, yawn, it's right? Like, it's like, uh, I, guess I, I would rather just sit in the reading room and read cases all day, right. you know, and like look at stuff. You know? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be figuring that out. But, you know, you, you help however you can because at the end of the day, you know, that's important too. We're all taking care of people. Yeah. So uh, you do what you can, but gosh, how lucky are we to be able to do And you brought up a good point too with the humility. It reminded me of, you know, you remember that movie Patton? Patton. It was about the general, George Patton. Oh, yeah, yeah, At the yeah. end, he's walking off. He, so he, his big deal is he thought he was a, re, re, well, who knows, right? But right. He was a re, reincarnated Roman general. And he, he was talking about how during the Roman triumphs, the general would ride into Rome, you know, with all these captured people in front of him. And it would be a slave holding the laurels over his head. But the slave would be whispering into his ear, all victory is fleeting, you know. And it just, I thought that was, <laughs> that just reminded me of, yeah. you know, it's it's true. You know, life is, you know, there's ups and downs. And you just, you always have to bring your A game and be ready to be humbled. So. Cool. And we're surrounded by people who bring their A game every day. Yeah, so we're so lucky to be working hard. where we are and yeah. they work with us. So thank you again for coming today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I guess that's it for today's topic. Yes, uh, cardiac MRIs. Thank you for thanks watching. Again. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't subscribed, hit that subscribe button. Please leave comments. We read those comments. Give us show ideas. Give us questions. We're happy to answer them. We would love to have these two back sometime. Yes. Um, so knowledge I, I cherish. Every yes. moment, I guess. We'll, we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it's it's a, such a pleasure to work with I these guys. It really is. Yeah, oh, so yeah. I'm very lucky. No. All righty, Zone 3 Podcast. Thanks again for watching. We are out. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 Podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 Podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entity seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.